The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 3 through 14. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God as also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Good to be with you guys. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, real quick before we jump in, uh, really glad you're here. Thanks for braving the weather. Um, we're going to pray in just a second, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page as far as uh, the holiday schedule that we have coming up as a church family. So just so no one's missing it, by way of reminder, all of this is also online, Citizen Charlotte. Com. But we will have a gathering next week, finishing up our series on the gifts of Christmas. And then on Friday, December 22nd, we're doing a Lessons and Carols service out at the Matthews Town Theater with a, a couple other churches in our city that we're partnered together with. We have no gathering on Christmas Eve, and then we'll be here on uh, New Year's Eve for a special time of prayer and worship, and then back at it, launching into 2024 with our three-year anniversary, which is really, really exciting. The Lord has got us this far, and we want to pray and continue to seek his face for what he has for us in the future as a community. So that's where we're going. Again, that's online, citizenscharlotte.com. You can grab that. There, just don't want you to, to miss out on what we're doing over the next few weeks. All right, grab a Bible. You're going to need it. We're going to be in two places. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 1, and then we're going to get to Isaiah chapter 7, that passage that Drew just read for us. So we'll start in Matthew 1, get eventually to Isaiah chapter 7. It's going to be a ton of fun. Just like last week, we got to do some work in the text to get to where we are going. Uh, so in light of that, let me pray for us, and then we'll just uh, we'll full steam ahead it. Sound good? Sweet. Love it. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we are here once again, living in this tension of an incredibly ordinary Sunday, and yet there's nothing ordinary about it. We know that you are also here, meeting us, going before us, living inside of us. And so we just want to recognize that we're not here 
alone, but we're here in your presence as your people, and you have come to meet with us. You have something for us. A word of encouragement, a word of conviction, a word of mercy. So we want to be open as your people to hear from you as our Father. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us push away any distractions, push away any to-do lists that are ringing around in our heads, any holiday must-get-dones that are just taking our affections and our attentions right now, Lord, and would you fix our eyes on you and on the empty tomb and on the cross and on the manger. Lord, we love you. You're here to speak to us, Lord, and so I pray that you would do what you have done for so long, that you would take your word by the power of your spirit, get it into our hearts such that we are formed more into the image of Christ. That's our heart. That's our plea. That's our deepest desire as your people. We love you. We need you. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we are uh, continuing our Advent series this morning where we are exploring together the deeper meanings behind the gifts that the wise men or the magi bring to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. These gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. We're exploring what do these gifts say or prophesy about the child born in Bethlehem. And I started this way last week, but I just thought it'd be helpful to kind of double up on it, that we are not making this stuff up out of thin air. This is not wild theological speculation. This is not like a fun thing we thought it'd be cool to talk about during Advent because it's Christmassy. We believe this is actually what the gifts are pointing to. We believe this for two reasons. The first, as I said last week, is that Christians have taught about the deeper meaning of the gifts for thousands of years. So last week I shared a quote with you from Irenaeus from 150 AD. I got another one for you. This is Origen, just 100 years after that. This is from his work, Contra Celsum, that he wrote in 248. He says this, They came, they being the Magi, accordingly to Judea, bringing gifts, gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who was mortal, and incense as to a god. And they brought these offerings after they had learned the place of his birth. The second reason why we don't think we're making this up is because of the purpose of Matthew. So you'll notice in your New Testament that there are four gospel accounts, four accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all of those seek to tell the story of Jesus with specific, distinct purposes. John has the purpose of we believing in Jesus so that we may have life in his name, he says at the end of his book. And the purpose of Matthew primarily is as a Jewish writer to convince his Jewish audience that this child born in Bethlehem is in fact the long-awaited Messiah. And so we said, and we'll see this throughout the book, and we'll see this this morning, that he kind of is dropping all of these sort of Easter egg hints throughout the gospel of Matthew to tell his Jewish audience, this is the guy. This is the one that you've been waiting on. This is the one that's been prophesied about for generations. This is the Messiah, including in the gifts. One of the things he's doing as the only gospel writer who includes the gifts is trying to say, I'm giving you evidence. This is the guy. I'm telling you something about the child born in Bethlehem. And so last week we looked at the gift of gold. We said that gold shows that the child, Jesus, has come as the shepherd king from Bethlehem. 
It was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah in Micah chapter 5, that the shepherd king would be born in this little town of Bethlehem, and he would come to defeat Satan's sin and death, bring his people to himself, and make all things new as the perfect embodiment of shalom. This week, we're going to talk about gift number two, the gift of frankincense. Now, just for a little bit of background, frankincense is a little less common than gold. Frankincense comes from the resin of a particular type of tree, what's called the Boswellia tree, located in the Arabian Arabian Peninsula. It looks something like this. This is pointless to the sermon. I just think it looks very cool. That's a fun tree, don't you think? So what happens with frankincense is that a cut is made in the bark of the tree, and then the resin seeps out and it forms into a hard lump. And when you burn that lump, it gives off a pleasant aroma, a strong, sweet smell. Now, in today's world, frankincense is not really that uncommon. It's not hard to get a hold of. You can actually get a bottle, I researched it, off of Amazon for like $10 or $15. And it's very popular, I've been told, no personal experience at all in the essential oil community. A lot of people will burn frankincense because it's known or said to have all these sorts of healing properties. It's supposed to uh, boost your immune system and help you kind of de-stress, all this good stuff. You can order it while I'm preaching if that sounds exciting to you. But back in the time of Jesus, frankincense was extremely expensive and extremely hard to get. So rare, so expensive, so hard to get, in fact, that frankincense was reserved almost exclusively for use within temples as a part of worshiping and sacrificing to deities, sacrificing to gods. You can find a ton of historical writings on this from both the Egyptians and the Romans a little bit before the time of Jesus, how they write about frankincense and how it should be reserved only for use in their temple worship. And that was actually true in the worship of God's people in the Old Testament as well. Frankincense was reserved by God to be used in the tabernacle and the temple. Frankincense was designated solely for the worship of God's people. But it had a specific reason for being there. You can read about this later if you want. Exodus chapter 30 and Leviticus chapter 2. Exodus 30, Leviticus chapter 2, if that sounds like fun Advent reading for you. But what would happen is that a Jewish priest would enter into the place in the tabernacle and then later the temple to offer sacrifices for the sins of God's people. And when they stepped into that room, one of the first things they were supposed to do is to light frankincense. And it was not just some empty religious ritual. What was supposed to happen is that as the aroma and the smoke filled the room from the frankincense, it was a reminder to the priest, God is here. He's present to you. He's with you. This is what God himself says in Exodus 30, verse 26. You shall beat some of the frankincense, very small, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. In other words, frankincense very simply points to the presence of God. That's what frankincense is pointing to. It points to God being present. Now, stick with me. Remember how Matthew works. He's using the gifts of the Magi to say something about Jesus by drawing connections from the gifts to other parts of the story, the birth narrative of Matthew, and then back into the Old Testament. And so when he highlights one of the gifts is frankincense, What he's alerting his audience to is, ding, 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 God is here. In some miraculous reality, God is present to us in this child, which he already made sure they were clear on in Matthew chapter 1. 
So that brings us to our first passage, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Hopefully you're there already. This is what Matthew says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, not to make a spectacle, not to kind of publicly shame her. He was trying to do right. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. More on that next week. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. All right, pause there real fast. So Matthew's telling this famous story of the birth of Jesus about how Mary and Joseph, before they did what married people do, she's found to be pregnant. Joseph's like, I don't know what to do about this. An angel shows up in the dream and is like, don't worry, this is from the Holy Spirit. This is to lean into the prophecies that God has made about this child. And then Matthew reinserts himself into the narrative in verse 22. So the angel's done talking, and this is Matthew saying, all of this that I just said took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, specifically the prophet Isaiah. And this is what Isaiah said, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's track with me. Everybody good so far? Once again... Matthew is using a prophecy from the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, 14, to shed light on the meaning of the miraculous birth of Jesus. And once again, his audience, when they hear this prophecy, would have not just thought back to Isaiah 7, 14, but would have thought back to Isaiah 7, and would have thought back to the whole book of Isaiah, and would have thought back to the surrounding story taking place behind Isaiah chapter 7. So let's hop back to Isaiah chapter 7. What is happening in this story? Where does this original prophecy take place in the context of the history of God's people? What is Isaiah about? Well, here's the 30,000-foot kind of flyover. 700 years or so before the birth of Jesus, actually just a few years before what we saw last week in Micah chapter 5, a king by the name of Ahaz is ruling over Judah. So at this point, God's kingdom, God's people is divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahaz is ruling over Judah. And during his reign, he hears rumors that Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are coming to attack him. And rightly so, he's freaking out. He's very afraid. He's very nervous. Isaiah 7, 2 says his heart was shaking as trees shake in the strong wind, which we live in Charlotte. We know what that looks like. That's Ahaz. He's nervous. He's kind of freaking out. And so you would think, okay, Ahaz is the king of God's people. He's in the lineage of King David, a man after God's own heart. Surely he would turn to God for help. Like, surely what we would read in Isaiah 7, if he knows these nations are trying to attack him, is some wonderful, heartfelt psalm crying out in desperation for the deliverance of God. Surely he's going to do that. God's going to rise up, deliver him. It's going to be a beautiful, wonderful story, right? Wrong. It's not what happens at all. Instead, Ahaz doesn't turn to God for help. Rather, he turns to Assyria a whole different nation for help instead. In fact, he actually goes to the temple and gets some gold that was reserved for the worship of God to take to the king of Assyria as a plea deal. 
hey, here's some gold from the temple set aside for our God. Will you take it? And in return, will you help us out against these two other kingdoms? Notice what he's doing. Instead of going to God for help in time of trouble, he looks everywhere else for deliverance and help. Sound familiar? Yeah, watch what God does. Look at verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Isaiah is the prophet, he's the one who speaks to God's people on behalf of God. He says to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirjazub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. So he sends Isaiah, tell Ahaz, don't fear. I know the threat. I know what they're saying. I know that they're saying they're going to come after you. Do not fear. Here's why. Verse 7. It shall not stand, shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So notice what's happening. God sends Isaiah, his prophet, to tell Ahaz, don't be afraid. Stand firm in your faith. I've got you. This is not going to work. These nations will not conquer you. Trust me, I will protect you if you remain firm in your faith in me. But what happens between verse 9 and verse 10, you can read the context of this, 2 Kings chapter 16. So it fills in some blanks between 9 and 10. And what you see happening in 2 Kings is that Ahaz doesn't really care. He doesn't listen. He doesn't really care about Isaiah. He doesn't really care about God. He's like, no, I'm going to go on with my plan. I like my plan more. It sounds better. I'm going to deliver us myself. And so this is what God says to Ahaz. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In other words, you had no problem troubling Assyria. Why are you suddenly holier than thou and you don't want to trouble me? I'm God. Like if you can trouble him, you can trouble me. It's okay. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So God tells Ahaz, even though you're not willing to ask, here's the sign. Here's the sign that I'm good, even when you're not asking for my help. Here's the sign that I'm going to deliver you and protect you, even when you'd rather run everywhere else to try and gain protection for yourself. Here's the sign that I can show up and deliver you, even when you forget about me and ignore me and run from me. Here's how you know. Here's the sign I will give to you of my faithfulness. A virgin will give birth to a son who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so here we are, 700 years later. Matthew picks up on this prophecy to tell his audience and us, even now, don't you see it? God has made good on his promise. A virgin named Mary has given birth to a child who is the Emmanuel, God with us. God has entered into humanity. 
God has taken on flesh, born of a woman. Fully God has become fully man and come into our world to be with us and rescue us and break the power of sin and death and set the captive free. So Matthew says to Israel and to us now as his reader, look, this prophecy in a deeper way has been fulfilled in the birth of this child prophesied by Isaiah, confirmed by the angel, pointed to by the gift of frankincense. Jesus is God with us. He's Emmanuel. Now, before we get into what all of that means for us here and now, I just want us to sit for a moment and ponder that reality. Because if you're anything like me, you may have lived through a Christmas or two, right? You may have lived through or heard before this reality. Yeah, Christmas is God being born to a virgin. I've heard that, God taking on flesh, and it just can kind of become white noise. And so one of the things I've been trying to do for my own soul this Advent season is to just kind of reignite the wonder of it all. And like, that sounds really like Christmassy cheesy, but just to kind of go, think about this moment for a second. I mean, we just sang it. Who would have dreamed this, that God would become a baby? And so let's just, I want to sit just for a minute before we we talk about how Isaiah 7 applies to our lives. So just sit in the wonder of the incarnation for a moment with three, three realities, three truths that I want us to consider. The first is just think about the wonder of condescension. Think about the wonder of condescension. I mean, think about this, that the God who made all things, who created all things for his glory, who holds all things together who existed from before time began with no beginning and no end, who is infinite with no limits and transcendent with no boundaries, took on flesh. A body with no sin, but absolutely with weakness, with the frailty of a child, that he would stoop to the level of flesh and blood. Don't out divinity the reality of the incarnation. Yes, he's fully God. We'll get to that more in a second, but he also becomes fully man. This child is in need of being taken care of by these two brand new young parents, right? How terrifyingly vulnerable is that reality? His life is threatened by the king. He's in need. God, the God of the universe, stoops to that level of condescension. No other God in the religions of history or the religions of the world stoops in that way. No other God. You can study the rest of the religions. Every other one is God is up here. Humanity's down here. What's humanity going to do to get up there? That's what makes so different about the reality of our one true God, that he condescends into humanity. He comes down, lowers himself, and takes on flesh. Secondly, think about the awesomeness of God's power. I mean, like how awesome and powerful must God be that he could create and fashion together a body that could sustain the indwelling of the triune God. Just think about that reality for a second. Jesus doesn't cease to be God. He doesn't give up his divinity. He doesn't become half God and half man. Fully God comes to dwell in fully man, takes on a body like you and I have with nerves and muscles and bones and organs, and yet holding the divinity of Christ at the same time. Like, how incredibly powerful do you have to be to create a body that can hold God? It's the wonder of the incarnation. Third, think about the magnificence of grace. Humanity does not deserve God with us. Like, if you read through the Old Testament, one of the things that will become abundantly clear is just how messed up humans are and just how patient God is. Here often in our cultural moment that the Old Testament is evidence that God is not kind. And yet my question is always, have you read it? 
Because it seems to be that the Old Testament says a whole lot more about how broken humanity is. It says so much. Genesis to Malachi. It's like story after story after story of what humanity does to one another. Killing each other, waging war against one another, lying, deceiving, cheating, stealing, hurting, and abusing. You get to the end of the Old Testament and you're like, what is happening here? And yet time and time again, the other thread you see in the Old Testament is God's patience. His kindness, that he would even show up to Ahaz, who wants nothing to do with him in the moment. I'm good, God. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to figure it out. I've got this. I'm the king. And he says, no, here's the sign. A virgin will give birth to Emmanuel. I'm here. I'm showing up in the midst of this. This is an unfathomable act of magnificent grace that God would come to be with broken humanity. This is the words of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who says it this way. But what that means is this, God cannot mean to destroy that race which he thus weds unto himself. It's the reality of the incarnation, that God's grace would be so great that he would see the brokenness of man and still choose to enter into humanity, saying, me, God, and humanity are forever intertwined in this magnificent story of redemption. Church, that's the wonder of the incarnation. That's our hope this Advent season, that God has taken on flesh and come to be with us. Frankincense, a nice-smelling essential oil, pointing us to this great reality. God has not left us on our own as humanity. Now, what does all that have to mean for us? What does that mean for us today? Here's here's where I want to land. Here's what I think frankincense and Isaiah 7 specifically has to say to us today here in this moment. It's a lot of things, but let me just pick one. Here's the reality. I think there's a little bit of King Ahaz in all of us. Here's what I mean by that. Times have changed, but the human heart most certainly has not. So when the rubber hits the road in our lives, when we're pressed and we're feeling crushed and we're feeling overwhelmed and we're feeling hopeless, when we're facing temptation, when we're going through just the the struggles and pains and realities of our everyday lives, how often, like Ahaz, is God our last resort of help? Like how often, when we face the reality of life as broken people in a broken world with suffering and pain and hurt, how often do we turn anywhere or anyone or anything else but God for salvation, relief, deliverance, and hope? I mean, think about all the functional Assyrians that we turn to in time of need. Like, think about all of the ways we look to deliver ourselves that are not God. Just think about this for a second. How do you fill in the blank of this statement? I'm going through a difficult time. I just need blank. I'm going through a difficult time. I just need a change. I just need something new. Change of scenery, change of career, change of relationship, change of self. I just need something new. I need something different. Maybe for you, it's I'm going through a difficult time. I just need some relief. A little bit of me time, a little social media break, a little TV binge, a little nap, a little vacation. I'm going through a difficult time. I just need to figure it out on my own. I need a new coping strategy. I need a new willpower and discipline. I need a new rule of life because I'm like extra spiritual about it. I need to figure out a new way to just step into this, get over this move past this. I'm going through a difficult time. I just need Christmas to get here. Going through a difficult time. I just need Christmas to be done. (laughs) But church, Advent shouts across history, there is a better hope. There's a better 
offer that just like King Ahaz and just like the Israelites in Matthew 1 and 2, God comes to us even when we're looking in every other direction for salvation and offers us himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And so get this, last week we said Advent was good news for those longing and waiting for God in the darkness. Last week he said it was good news for those of us who are desperately hoping for God, that he arrives as a declaration of war, the shepherd king from Bethlehem, to gather his people to himself, defeat what is broken, and usher in perfect shalom. But here's what I want you to hear today. Advent is also good news, not just for those longing and waiting, but those who gave up longing and waiting a long time ago. Advent is good news for those of us constantly pleading and asking the Lord, where are you and when will you deliver me? But Advent is also good news for those of us who haven't prayed in a month. Advent is good news for us when we're desperate for God, but it's also good news for us when we are distracted from God. Advent's good news for those of us that say, Lord, I need you. Where are you? Will you show up? Advent offers hope. And Advent also offers hope for those of us who go, I haven't thought about God, and I'm just going to figure it out on my own, and I'm just going to fix it, and I'm just going to do what I need to do. Advent offers hope for both. And so maybe for you, this year, Christmas is not feeling holly jolly. Contrary to the words of the famous Christmas song, one of my all-time favorites, your troubles do not feel miles away. Maybe the Christmas season for you is accompanied by sadness and pain. Maybe it it brings up feelings of loneliness or loss. Maybe for you, this is the year where there's an empty seat at the table. There's a voice missing from the joy and excitement of Christmas morning. And maybe for you, it's just nothing to do with Christmas. It's, It's just the regular pressures of life. I'm not thinking about Christmas. I'm thinking about paying bills thinking about my marriage. I'm thinking about my career. I'm thinking about my finances. I'm thinking about my health. I'm thinking about my kids. Fill, fill in the blank. Like King Ahaz and like the Israelites, you're asking, where can I turn for help? And you've tried all of these functional Assyrian saviors in your life. You've tried the new season. You've tried just getting through the bad week. You've tried this strategy and that strategy, this book and that technique. Fill in the blank. And here's the invitation for you, church. God is inviting you to hear the shout of Advent that there is a better hope. And that hope is God with us. Entering into humanity, entering into the darkness, he says, turn to me, I am Emmanuel. God has come to be with his people. Because Advent isn't isn't the good news that all your troubles will be miles away. Sorry, Mr. Buble, right? Advent is the good news that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us in our troubles with us in our pain, in our striving. And yet even better than that, the good news of Emmanuel is not just God with us, but also we know the story keeps going. Jesus comes, he's born, he lives, he dies, he rises again, and then Acts chapter one, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. But that's not God ceasing to be with us, rather the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And now all who believe in Christ, all who trust in him are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit sealing us for the day of salvation, empowering us to fight against sin, giving us supernatural peace in the midst of our circumstances, guarding us against lies and accusations of the enemy, and so on and so forth. And so the good news of Emmanuel is not just God with us, but it's also God in us forever. So that's the good news that we hope for, that we don't have to turn around looking for a bunch of functional saviors because God is in us and with us as Emmanuel. So gold, a king, is born today, incense, God is with us. And so we wait on him. We hear his words to Ahaz, stand firm in your faith because he's come and he's coming again. Amen. Let's pray together.
Lord, we need you in our moments of trial, in our moments of grief, in our moments of suffering, in our moments of pain. We need you, Emmanuel, God with us, taking on flesh, entering into the world. Lord, and there are so many ways we are like Ahaz. Separated by thousands of years, and yet the human heart is the same, Lord. We want to save ourselves. We want to deliver ourselves. We want to figure it out ourselves. We want to save ourselves. We want to provide for us. It's all about us. What can I do? How can I deliver me? And yet the constant invitation you had for him and you have for us is, no, try me in this. Here's the sign. A virgin will give birth to a son. And so Lord, I pray for us in the midst of our striving that we would hear the invitation of Advent. We would set down our functional saviors. We would set down our striving. We would set down our self-deliverance. We would cling to you who has come to be God with us. Lord, our hearts are fickle. It's wired into our sin nature to want to be our own saviors, Lord, and yet you rule and reign over our sin. And you call us to yourself. So Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts to turn us towards you, the real Savior, the real Deliverer, not just from our suffering, from our sin, from our judgment, from our punishment. You call us home. Would you let this Advent season press that reality into our lives? You've come to deliver us. We do not have to deliver ourselves. Jesus has come. He is the Emmanuel. We love you. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's name. And all God's people said... Amen.